Welcome to Dad Bod History, where the drinks are cold and the takes are old. I'm your host, Eric Hoffman, and it is just me in this episode. We're going to try something a little bit different from time to time, change up our format. By all means, please let us know what you think. Leave a comment, give us a like, a five-star rating, subscribe. Those things do help us out a lot. We are going to call this a DBH snack, a bite of history. This is the terrible fate of Emperor Valerian. I have a story I want to tell you. I recently began reading a book by Peter Frankopan titled The Silk Roads, A New History of the World. This thing had me in the preface. He talked about the focus on Western history, that is ancient Greece and Rome, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment, the rise of humanism, and the types of representative governments that would be birthed in the United States, France, and the United Kingdom. And of course, the catastrophes of the 20th century, nearly all centered in North America and Europe, including the World Wars and Cold War. His point was that in that particular endeavor and focus, we're missing a great deal of wonderful history and knowledge, complex, rich, and interwoven history that is anchored at the crossroads of three continents. And what he said that really got my attention was that there are numerous great cities of antiquity that most people don't even know. Cities like Merv, Mashhad, or Ray. And to be honest, I don't recognize any of these cities' names. Or if I do, I can't really place them accurately on a map, or in my mind in terms of what they would have looked like, or how their people may have lived. So the picture he paints of a string of ancient cities stretched from the Jade Gate at the eastern end of the Taklamakan Desert to the Bosporus Strait and the Nile River captures my imagination, because in some ways it reads almost like a fantasy novel to me. Great, magnificent, wealthy cities filled with interesting people, spectacular art, and deep learning. I have to go back to a class I taught at my first school. It was a seventh grade world history class, and we studied the thread of Western civilization. And I won't be found claiming that it doesn't have merit or a place being taught as a significant part of any curriculum, but it was also a world civilizations class. So we studied ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, China, India, and the African kingdoms. And I thoroughly enjoyed working through those civilizations with my students. It was truly an exploration into something with which they and I had little familiarity. And yet the power, wealth, and majesty of some of these lands never really stuck with me. And now I'm getting a little bit off topic, aren't I? In all my years of teaching about the ancient Romans, I so frequently focused on their vast array of enemies, the Carthaginians, the Picts, the Germanic tribes, and even themselves at times. But I seem to have lost the thread of their greatest rival, Persia. An empire and people so powerful, they had been one of the dominant empires since before even the Greeks had consolidated themselves into something more than a collection of warring city-states that happened to share a language and a culture. But now let's talk about Valerian, the Roman Emperor Valerian. He rises to power in a year in which Turbonius Gallus is deposed by Aemilius Aemilianus, and three months later, he is deposed and murdered by his own legions who then throw their lot behind Valerian. Gallus, upon realizing he would be in dire straits against Aemilius, 
had sent Valerian north to go gather more legions. Historian Edward Gibbon describes in his The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire that Aemilius had vanquished Gallus, who, he continues, had sent Valerian, already distinguished by the honorable title of censor, to bring the legions of Gaul and Germany to his aid. Valerian executed that mission with zeal and fidelity, and as he arrived too late to save his sovereign, he resolved to avenge him. The troops of Aemilius, who still lay in camp in the plains of Spoleto, were awed by the sanctity of his character, but much more by the superior strength of his army. And as they were now become as incapable of personal attachment as he had always been of constitutional principle, they readily imbrued their hands in the blood of a prince who had so lately been the object of their partial choice. The guilt was theirs, but the advantage of it was Valerian's who obtained the possession of the throne by the means indeed of a civil war, but with a degree of innocence singular in that age of revolutions, since he owned neither gratitude nor allegiance to his predecessor whom he dethroned. Valerian is also known as one of the emperors who carried out widespread persecution of Christians during his reign. Many of these include forcing Christian clergy and leaders to worship and make sacrifices to Roman gods. For not doing this, they could be banished, they could be stripped of all lands and property, and expelled from positions of power within the Roman government. In a variety of extreme cases, they could also be executed. Valerian's son, upon ascending to the throne in Rome, however, would rescind these decrees of his father. Valerian does something as soon as he becomes emperor, and that is he makes his son also a Caesar, and he puts him in charge of the western part of the empire. This isn't really unexpected. It's neither the first nor the last time the empire divides its most powerful office to administer the breadth of its holdings. But we also often look at Europe as we look at Rome's incursions into Gaul and Germany and to Britain as their primary concern for many years. It was a concern that the barbarians who lived there, the relatively uncivilized people that populated these regions, are the ones that cause numerous problems for Rome on a very frequent basis. It's where Julius Caesar comes to power, gains his fame and glory, and eventually his place as dictator for life. But even Valerian is truly Roman. In his eyes, like most Romans' eyes throughout their history, they're not looking west. They're not looking to Europe. They're looking to the east. What's so great about the east, you might ask? Wealth, power, knowledge. There's great prestige in conquering lands to the east of Rome. The great cities of the world are all east of Rome. There is no beautiful Barcelona. There is no picturesque Paris. There is no London. If anything, in 253 AD, there was nothing but Roman outposts and settlements. But Byzantion, Antioch, Merv, Persepolis, Tessaphon, Babylon, Jerusalem, these are jewels of cities, great ones with deep histories. And so Valerian appoints his son Caesar and gives him control of the western portion of the empire that is, Europe, which is not too different from saying, son, take the backwater, I'll deal with the real threats. Valerian spends the next few years on campaigns in the east. He attempts to reclaim Antioch. He deals with Armenia that has fallen to the Sasanian king of kings of the Persians, Shapur I. Here is where Valerian comes to his terrible, terrible fate. While on these campaigns in the east, fighting Persia, he is captured by Shapur. How Valerian came to be captured by the Persians is told in the Epitome Historiarum 
by 12th century historian John Zanaris, and he draws from both Josephus and Cassius Dio as his sources. He begins to explain in his work that things are not going well for Rome. Nations are rising up against them at every corner of the empire, and that is where we meet Valerian at Edessa. Edessa is now the city of Urfa in modern-day Turkey, just north of the Syrian border. Zanaris says Valerian hesitated to fight his enemies, but this changes when he hears reports that soldiers had managed to depart the city of Edessa and, quote, attacked the barbarians, slaying many of them and taking a great number of the dogs captive. Valerian goes into battle with his own loyal army and is encircled by the Persian forces. Zanaris continues, quote, Valerian, along with the men about him, was taken captive by his enemies and bore off to Shapur. Cruel he was before. Afterwards, he became much worse. Zanaris gives further detail into how the capture actually happened. Starvation broke out among his soldiers, who because of this rebelled and sought to kill the emperor. Remember, Valerian is the product of not one emperor who fell to his own fickle soldiers, but two. Quote, fearing the rebellion of his soldiers, he fled to Shapur, so that he would not be destroyed by his own men, and surrendered himself up to his enemy. Whether the emperor was taken in war by the Persians or he willingly handed himself over to them, he was treated dishonorably by Shapur. Another historian, a 5th century Greek by the name of Zosimus, goes into a little bit more detail into how Valerian came to be captured by the Persians. He begins by explaining a plague is ravaging Valerian soldiers, and most of them have been laid to waste by this disease. This particular situation has added a great deal of stress to the emperor. Valerian has a breakdown of sorts. He becomes indolent, full of despair, and is fully ready to sue for peace, regardless of the financial cost. But Zosimus writes that Shapur desires for, quote, the emperor to come and speak with him in person concerning the affairs he wishes to adjust. Valerian's offer is to pay off Shapur, and the Persian king counters with, no, 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 let's just meet in person. The historian Zosimus concludes this account that the emperor was presently laid hold of by the enemy, and so ended his days in the capacity of a slave among the Persians to the disgrace of the Roman name in all future times. It's not simply that he was captured. It's not only that he's made prisoner by a foreign power. He is the emperor of Rome. Valerian is the first citizen of Rome, and to be held captive, holding that title and position, ostensibly means that all of Rome is held captive. We might try to imagine how terrifying it would be for a current head of state in the Western world to be captured and held captive by a rival power how much fear and terror that would strike into the hearts of the people of that nation and other allied nations. But this goes a little bit deeper because the kings and emperors of these nations at this time in history are not representative of the people. More frequently, they are representatives of divinity on earth, representatives of heaven that rule by divine diktat. And so what does it say when the ruler of your nation, who in the eyes of your people is tantamount to a god, is taken captive? And we might think, that this fate for an emperor is quite terrible indeed. But the story continues, and there is, of course, some uncertainty about the veracity of the following claims. The historian Lactantius, who lived in the 3rd and 4th century, is an early Christian author, and he's an advisor to Constantine I, the Roman emperor. He writes a work entitled De Mortibus Persecutorum, which translates to On the Deaths of the Persecutors. 
In this work of his, he's pointing to many of the persecutors of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And so he writes about Valerian as a persecutor of Christianity, receiving his just deserts. Lactantius writes, quote, He, having been made prisoner by the Persians, lost not only that power which he had exercised without moderation, but also the liberty of which he had deprived others. And he wasted the remainder of his days in the vilest condition of slavery. For Shapur, the king of the Persians, who had made him prisoner, whenever he chose to get into his carriage or to mount on horseback, commanded the Roman to stoop and present his back. This is the epitome of being treated like a doormat. And in this particular case is one of the more public displays in which the Roman emperor could be humiliated. Lactantius continues, Valerian lived for a considerable time under the well-merited insults of his conqueror, so that the Roman name remained long the scoff of derision of the barbarians. And this also was added to the severity of his punishment, that although he had an emperor for his son, he found no one to revenge his captivity and most abject and servile state. Neither indeed was he ever demanded back. That is, the Romans made no plea, no bargain, no offer, no ransom for the return of their emperor. The author concludes this passage. Quote, Afterward, when he had finished this shameful life under so great dishonor, he was flayed, and his skin, stripped from his flesh, was dyed with vermilion and placed in the temple of the gods of the barbarians, that the remembrance of a triumph so signal might be perpetuated, that this spectacle might always be exhibited to our ambassadors, as an admonition to the Romans that, beholding the spoils of their captive emperor in a Persian temple, they should not place too great confidence in their own strength. One might recoil at the thought of a Roman emperor being captured, murdered, and displayed in such a horrific fashion. But these are the Romans. Consider how they dealt with 6,000 slaves who revolted under Spartacus. We can look at the single crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the horrific display of barbarity that a crucifixion is, and multiply that by 6,000 slaves who were crucified alongside the road to Rome. Consider what the Romans did not just to their enemies, but to the leaders of their enemies when captured. In the case of Vercingetorix, who had surrendered to Julius Caesar, he was brought to Rome, paraded through the streets, and eventually ceremonially strangled to death before being beheaded. The fact that we have only one Roman emperor to receive this terrible fate is quite honestly a miracle. Although the majority of Roman emperors who died in office of non-natural causes have usually been at the hands of other Romans. The terrible fate of Emperor Valerian is truly a cautionary tale for those who would believe themselves to be untouchable due to their elevated position. At this point, I'd like to do something a little bit different, and it's not something we normally do, although we haven't done this kind of episode ever before, so none of this is what we usually do. But I want to do a little bit of editorialization. When I first began researching Emperor Valerian, I had this basic outline, um, big broad brushstrokes of this story. And so I went on our TikTok account and I posted a short video giving the basics of this story and what happened to Valerian. And at the end of the video, I said essentially that the Romans weren't so civilized themselves, uh, which is not too different from how I ended this podcast. The Romans carried out numerous atrocities that we would consider Ro- con- that we'd consider war crimes, even. Um, 
And a comment came through on that video that questioned who I thought I would consider civilized in the ancient world. That maybe I shouldn't be digging on ancient civilization so much. I did respond in a short video, but I wanted to give a little bit more here. The word civilization is derived from the Latin civitas, which means city. And early cities are a marker of civilization in that they required cooperation in order so that they might survive. This order takes the form of laws and government, and people within these cities had to agree to live and work together. This means that they had to share some values in that they had to place certain priorities above others. And that might mean over the course of hundreds or thousands of years that compromises were reached in certain values in order to uphold others. So that begs another question. What does it mean to be civilized? It's a very tricky question. It's a kind of what I wanted to talk about right now. These events around the life of Valerian show how brutal civilizations can be. And we might ask, well, were the Persians uncivilized in how they treated Valerian? I think the more important question would be, were they civilized in how they treated their people? We could turn back to the question of Rome. Were the Romans civilized in how they treated their enemies, including the Persians? Were they civilized in how they treated their citizens? And again, we can look back at how the Romans invented crucifixion as a method of execution that could last hours, if not days. Is it fair, by our standards as Americans with the Bill of Rights that list and limit how the government can handle its people, to judge how people lived and governments established justice? We have to ask ourselves this question. But are we civilized in the modern Western world or in the United States? Is capital punishment in any form the mark of a civilized society? The fact that in the United States we can still carry out capital punishment on a semi-routine basis and that we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the world, you might think we were quite uncivilized. We do have an extremely high standard of living. I don't know that that is necessarily equitable with being civilized, though. Modern American society and its government has technology and institutions the Romans could not have even imagined, but I'm not sure that we are more civilized than they were. Is it civilized to execute criminals for what we would consider non-capital crimes and executing them in painful, public, and memorable ways in order to deter crime? Is it civilized to allow suffering? If so, how much suffering can we allow and to what lengths would you go to alleviate suffering? Would you kill to alleviate suffering? Think about that one. A future civilization might look back at the United States and view our insistence on upholding individual civil rights as an uncivilized and chaotic approach because those freedoms do allow for a great deal of suffering. If the ends justify the means, then you can certainly say or justify that having peace at home, a higher standard of living, and building great institutions are worth the cost of doling out horror, terror, and atrocities at your borders and against your enemies. And at the end of this thought experiment of mine, at the end of writing this, I might sum it up like this. Being civilized is putting many of our natural human tendencies in check. It's taming the impulses that lead to a lack of any progress. Being civilized, it's to mask and cover the human condition. But that condition, that state of being still exists. Not only in each individual human, but in our institutions, communities, and larger societies. When that rears its ugly head, 
and we are faced with losing civilization, we often must act in an uncivilized manner. We must fight fire with fire. Maybe these kinds of uncivilized acts are the true marker of a civilization. I want to thank you for joining us today. If you do want a fully in-depth story about the Persians and how they went about running their empire, I would highly recommend Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. He has a three-part series titled King of Kings. It's absolutely amazing and fascinating. Uh, I do thank you for joining us for this first DBH snack, A Bite of History. Please give us a like, follow, subscribe, and comment away. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and if you'd like more similar episodes. Thank you again.